Well, please stand for our scripture reading. Uh, I have been appointed to read it for you this morning, so I'm going to do that, uh, which comes from Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brian. Good morning. Great to, great to gather with you as always. Um, let me just say, if you are interested in uh, partnering more and, and being involved in this Surrey Church plant, maybe you feel the Lord is calling you to go. Uh, maybe you're not sure if you should go. I just checked the weather. It's like 21 degrees and sunny in Surrey. <laughs> so if, that, if that's all you needed to come, be, you can come. Be, be encouraged. Uh, no, but truly, if, if you do want to know more, uh, you want to hear what the Lord's put on my heart, you want to know how you can be involved, please come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to grab a coffee with you sometime and, and share what I feel like the Lord is leading us to do as a church. Um, if you haven't already, please do grab your Bibles and turn to Titus 2. Uh, Titus 2, 11 to 14 is where we're going to be this morning. We've been in these same four verses for three weeks. <clears throat> We've looked at past grace. We've looked at present grace, and this morning we're going to be looking at future grace. This morning, we're going to be talking about heaven. Now, if it seems strange to talk about heaven in a series on Christmas, you should know that this Advent season, this, this calendar time where the church is devoted to, to looking back to the, the coming of Jesus, actually serves two purposes— one, we wait, we prepare our hearts to, to celebrate Jesus, and, and we remember the significance of that. But that waiting for Christmas prepares us for the current waiting we do, the, the waiting for eternal life, the waiting for the future a coming of Jesus. Verse 11 says, the grace of God has appeared. That's God showing up in the manger. And then verse 13 says, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the future appearing of Jesus. When, when we sing as a church, O come, O come, Emmanuel, O come, O come, God with us, you should know that's not just something we sing out of nostalgia. That We, we really mean that as a church. We, we long for Jesus to come once more. Now, what I want to say this morning is that longing for, that waiting and anticipation of the future reality of Jesus' return to earth actually changes us and affects the way we live here and now. In her book, Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin uh, begins by comparing two dreams. The first dream is this. You would be familiar with it. Both of these you'd be familiar with. She begins with John Lennon's dream. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. 
No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Now, what she's expressing and what John Lennon is sharing here is, I think, a a common objection raised against Christianity, which is this, that Christians are so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. Christians are so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly good. Because we believe that this life is not all there is, then we don't really care about preserving the environment, fighting against the injustice in this world, caring for people who are suffering, and overall just improving the well-being of our society. Why would we? Who cares, right? If there's heaven still to come, then who cares about what happens here and now? Now, compare this with a dream told eight years earlier than John Lennon's. It's Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream. He says this, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. I don't know if you're aware of this. Those words that Martin Luther King Jr., recited on the lawn there, those were not in his notes. He, he was speaking to the crowd before him. He's looking out and he's going, whatever I've just said is not connecting with this people. And so these words spontaneously flowed from his heart. You know what these words are? These words are him longing for heaven. That section in the middle there, every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places shall be made plain, the crooked places shall be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. He's quoting the book of Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah 40. Junior here is longing for heaven. And it's because of that that he thinks our lives should be different here and now. He goes on to say, there are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. And I submit to you that if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. It's not believing that heaven doesn't exist that changes us. I want to argue that it's actually believing that heaven does exist, that changes the way we live our lives, that invites us to join in on God's mission and what he has for us. So I have a very simple outline this morning. Firstly, life then. What what is this thing we long for with Jesus' return? And secondly, life now. How does that future reality affect us today? Life then and life now. Firstly, life then. Look at verse 13 in Titus 2 here. Verse 13 reads, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
What is, my question, that blessed hope? Well, if, if you go back to the very uh, beginning of this book, Titus 1-2 says this, we have the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Then he, he also say the same thing in, ver, in chapter 3, verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, so what is this, this blessed hope? It's eternal life. It's the hope of heaven. But what is that, right? What, 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 what is that? Um, I think one of the reasons we struggle to understand how the future ought to impact us today is we're a little fuzzy in our own minds of what we're actually talking about when we talk about heaven. So, so what I mean by this is this. Um, my grandpa passed away just uh, a little bit over a year ago. Now, where is grandpa? Well, according to the Bible, because to the best of my knowledge, grandpa trusted in the finished work of Jesus, grandpa is in heaven. Now, does that mean grandpa is no longer waiting? Well, no. Grandpa still continues to long for what verse 13 says here, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's longing still for, for Jesus to return. See, grandpa is now in the present heaven, but that is different than the final and forever heaven. What? This is the way the Bible describes it. The Bible describes what some have called an intermediate state, an, an intermediate heaven. If you're a Bible nerd, this is sometimes called Abraham's bosom. It, it's where Christians go where they die. It's this temporary dwelling place where Christians do not yet have bodies, though, and they await the final and forever heaven. So this intermediate heaven, it is preferred to living here and now. It's a place free from the curse of sin. It's a place in the very presence of God. And yet there's this tension. We still long for more beyond that. As amazing as it is to be with God in this intermediate heaven, we long for Jesus to reappear physically on earth because then we will also be given physical bodies. We will live embodied lives. That's what our ultimate hope is in. I think this physical reality of heaven is actually in many ways implied here in our passage. Again, we are longing for, verse 13 says, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The, the language here is referring to one person, it's even more plain in the original Greek language. This God is also the Savior, and those are both Jesus. We long for Jesus to come back. The, the reason God came in the form of Jesus in the manger is because Jesus intended to redeem us physically. Everything Jesus put on, everything God put on, he sought to rescue and fix so Jesus came physically after Jesus' death. He rose bodily, again, giving us hope of a bodily resurrection. And then in his return, Jesus will come back in the very same body. He's not transporting us to a spiritual world where we eat cream cheese in the clouds. He, he comes and he transforms this physical world. 
Our hope is to be with Jesus with a physical body in a physical world. So just think about that for a second. As amazing as it will be to be in the presence of God, Paul says, actually, there's even better still yet to come. That we actually are able to enjoy more of God when we are eating food, when we're running around and our hearts are thumping in our chests, when we're touching one another, when we're there physically in Jesus' presence. That is still greater still. Randy Alcorn, in his book, um, gives this analogy of uh, this waiting for this forever heaven. He, he tries to distinguish the difference between this intermediate and this eternal heaven. He says this, he says, suppose you live in hope. He doesn't use the, the city of hope, or is it a town of hope, or a, anyways, whatever hope is. But he, he anyway, he's just another town. But suppose you live in hope. They've never had a sunny day in their life. And, and you all of a sudden get this opportunity to travel to Miami. This is this glorious house. You have this glorious job awaiting for you there. A bunch of your family has already left. They're going to they're gonna meet you there. Now, on your way to Miami, you have to stop in Toronto. Now, no one wants to be in Toronto. It's just, it's just this, you know, you got to lay over in Toronto. You got to go there before you, you get to, to Miami. Now, when we're talking, when we're longing for this future place we're going to be, we don't talk about Toronto. No one goes, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going on a trip. I'm going to Toronto. No, you just say, no, I'm, I'm heading to Miami. The, the, the same is, is true for our lives. In this analogy, obviously, hope is here. Uh, Miami is heaven and Toronto is purgatory. Uh, Toronto is, is the intermediate heaven. And so we just, we, we fix our eyes on our forever home. That's what we wait for. We, we long to be with Jesus in this forever heaven. This, the Bible calls this forever heaven the, the new earth, the, the new heavens and new earth. So in the book of Revelation, we read this. This is, this is uh, John describing what this forever home will be like. He says, Then I saw, Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, get this, coming down out of heaven. Those are important words. The New Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This new earth we hear here, comes down. It's, it's not a, an escaping, a transporting off into some far off place. It's, it's the new realities coming down. It, this world will be redeemed. It will be renewed. It will be restored. If you want to know what this future heaven will be like, our forever home will be like, don't close your eyes. Open them. Look around you. The Bible says all that is true, all that is good, all that brings God glory will last. And all that is broken will be transformed and healed. That's what we long for. To be with God in a physical body, in a physical place. C.S. Lewis describes it this way in his book, The Last Battle. Uh, this little girl, Lucy, is um, grieving because this home, Narnia, this place she loved so dear, begins to pass away. And then she realizes what she's seeing. She says this, those hills, said Lucy, 
the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very much like the southern border of Nardia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly like. And yet, said Lucy, they're different. They have more colors on them, and they look further away than I remembered, and they're more, more like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. The Narnia you're thinking of was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been the here and always will be here. The new Narnia was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed it up, summed up what everyone was feeling. He cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. The reason we love our home here right now is because it looks just a little bit like our forever home with Jesus. This is what we long for. God has never given up on redeeming, on fixing this world. Even in the flood, he still has a plan for this world. One day, Jesus will return to earth. He will purify it and he will make this earth new. Then, secondly, what does that mean for life now? What, what does that mean for our lives today in the in the nitty-gritty i think sometimes we um we talk about this end time the end times. we talk we talk about heaven as if it's a clock like just tell me when that happens right we read about heaven and we just go when when is that happening and i think actually a better purpose for this heavenly reality of this talking about end times is to serve as a compass it's, it's not a clock, but a compass. It, it orients us to know how we should live our lives. So I think it changes the way we live our lives in three ways. It causes us to live with courage. It causes us to live lives that are pleasing to God. And we live lives to persuade. We live with courage. We live to please. We live to persuade. Firstly, we live with courage. We live with courage. I think what this future heaven does is it changes our current perspective on suffering. In the Bible, when the authors talk about heaven, they don't do so as just a bunch of facts and information. It's not like one day we're just going to have to fill out a quiz. Do you know what, what heaven and eternity is going to be like? No. Most of the time, when the authors of the Bible speak about heaven, they do so to people who are facing incredible suffering. The book of Revelation is John writing to churches who are facing immense persecution at the hand of the Roman emperor. Here, even in, in Titus 2, Paul is writing here. He says, look at just the section right before ours, 2 verse 9. He says this, he says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're not there to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in every way they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He goes on to say in 3 verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And Paul knows, look, that's hard. To be submissive to a master or to a government that disagrees with you, that causes you suffering and, and hardship, how are we supposed to endure those type of realities? Paul says, you, you have to look to heaven. Don't you know what we're waiting for? If there's anyone who knew uh, what waiting was about, I think it was the Apostle Paul. Paul, in, in the book of 2 Corinthians, he says this. He's waiting because he says this. He says, uh, 11.23 says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. 
I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from ridgers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger in sea, danger from the false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst often without food in cold and exposure and you go Paul why do you endure all of that it's because you go I'm, I know what I'm waiting for there's something still yet to come see what what the reappearing of Jesus declares is that we do not only go around this earth one time to, to miss out on pleasure in the here and now is not ultimately to miss out on pleasure. To, to suffer here and now, that doesn't define us. That, that's not our ultimate identity. Pain is not our ultimate identity. Look, there may be some of you right now who are suffering immensely. Maybe physical ailment, maybe from mental illness, maybe you've just been wronged and hurt by others. The reappearing of Jesus declares, that doesn't define you. That's not all you're left to. That, that's not what will be your, your destiny for forever. No, no, that, that is a, a moment in time. See, it is all right for Christians to, to try and alleviate some of our pain. That's, that's God's common grace to us. But to alleviate pain, to remove suffering, that's not our ultimate purpose in life. In fact, Christians can actually enter into, we can enter into pain if it means we get to bless others and, and point others to Jesus. Even, even history, I think, shows this. Um, Rodney Stark, he's a sociologist and historian. He often, um, he describes this response that Christians versus the rest of society had to a dangerous plague in the Roman Empire in the second century. They didn't know a lot about this disease back then, but they knew it spread through contact. And so what did all of the unbelievers do? What did, what did the rest of the city do? They left. They isolated. But Christians they remained in the city. They cared for their sick. They cared for their own, for their families, and also for those who didn't belong to their community, for the unbelievers. And because of that, Christians just sprung up from everywhere. Uh, um, Ronnie Stark, he says this. He says, I quote, Christians believed in life everlasting. At most, pagans believed in an unattractive existence in the underworld. Thus, for Galen, he was a, a doctor who documented this time back then, for Galen to have remained in Rome to treat the afflicted during the first great plague would have required, get this, far greater bravery than was needed for Christians. Bravery, courage to endure suffering, even death for the sake of others. Every bit of suffering is not us losing out. Christ has been raised from the dead. He will reappear. The earth will experience a resurrection of sorts. And thus pain is a tool used by God to refine us and enable us to enjoy more of what God has for us. So it allows us to live with courage, this future reality. It also causes us to live lives that are pleasing to God. 
We live to please. Secondly, look, look at verse uh, 11 to 14 again. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This whole section is filled with this language of living self-controlled lives, upright lives, godly lives, lives that are free from lawlessness, lives that are, are pure, lives that are zealous for good works. And smack dab in the middle of all of that, Paul goes, and it's because of heaven we should live like that. There's this, there's this motivation that comes from knowing that one day we will appear before Jesus. We will stand, church, hear this. We will stand before the God who made us. We're, we're going to stand before the God who saved us, who laid his life down for us. We're going to stand before the God who cares for us, who redeems us, who provides for us. And in that moment of standing before him, you know what I want? I want to show him, God, this is why you changed me. This is why you saved me. Don't you see what effect your saving grace had on my life? I want to please him. I remember that time in my own life between when I proposed and my wedding day. And, I, and I, when I think back to it, I, just, I see how much God worked in that season. It, it was this time of like, my goodness, I cannot believe this woman is marrying me. <laughs> and so there's this aspect of like, Man, I want to love her back. I, I, I want her to delight in me. I want, I want God to mature me and, and purify me and get me ready to be a husband who, could, who can serve her, who she can delight in. Tolkien, he, he says this. He says, the, the praise of the praiseworthy one is above all rewards. The, the praise of the praiseworthy one is above all rewards. There will come a day when we will see Jesus face to face. The praiseworthy one face to face. And in that moment, what I want more than anything else is for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want him to praise me for the way I lived my life. If I'm honest, though, um, preparing this sermon on heaven was hard. I, I was really convicted. I... I don't think about heaven nearly as much as I ought to. When, when I think of future, I think of retirement. I, I think of kids out of diapers. <laughs> I think kids out of the home. I feel like extra income. I, that, I mean, that's my, that's my heaven in many ways. You know that picture of like a 60-year-old retiring on the golf course? That's what I want. I just want to golf. And I, and, and I just am so aware of how that, that nearsighted reality, that, that small view of my heaven just affects the way I live here and now. And how that affects the way I use my money, the way I use my time. I need, I need to have a bigger picture of heaven. There's, so, there's something greater still yet to come. I read these words again by C.S. Lewis. There's a, you get a lot of C.S. Lewis, this sermon. He, he says this. It's this, talking about this little mouse longing to, to be with Aslan, 
longing to be in, in this king's country. He's speaking of our longing for heaven. He says, while I can, I sail east in the dawn treader in this big, big boat. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle, this, this little wooden boat. When she sinks, I'll swim east with my forepaws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of this world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. I want to live like that. Just always fixing my gaze on eternity, on fixing my gaze on standing before Jesus in his presence. And I want that to change me. I want that to motivate me to please him in all that I do. Lastly, we live to persuade. Our works, our good works please the one who saved us, but our good works also work to persuade others to find the same salvation. Right before, again, our section, again, I read this, in 2 verse 9 and 10, we read this, okay? So Paul just explained this big section on, on how we're supposed to act, on how we're supposed to live in our home with one another, older women and younger women, older men to younger women, uh, younger men, and then he talks about bond servants, and he says this, bond servants are to be submissive to their masters in everything they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything, he sums us this entire section, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of the God our Savior. What, what do all these good works do? What does all this righteous conduct do? It serves to adorn the gospel. It, it's as though it's this jewelry that we wear. These good works is this jewelry that we put on that attracts others. It, it, it intrigues others so that people look at our lives and go, man, you're weird. Why? You're, you're strange and, and different. There's something that stands out about you. You don't, you don't quite fit in. Can, can you tell me? And, then, and that allows us an opportunity to explain what we have put our hope in on the second coming of Jesus, on, on his saving reality. See, we believe that when Jesus appears in glory, he will judge the living and the dead. But the response that we have will not all be the same. For some, for Christians, when God judges us, he, because we've put our faith in his perfect life, his judgment is one of giving out uh, rewards to us. He, he looks at our righteous acts and he goes, man, I want to reward you for the way you lived your life. But for the unbeliever who has not lived a life to try and please God, why would they? Right? They don't believe he's done anything for them. It, just, it makes sense. that The judgment, the Bible says, is, is one of wrath. He, he'll declare us guilty if we have not put our faith in him. It, it's a fearful thing to face the judgment of God. We, we know we have not lived up to his standards. We, we haven't lived up to our own standards. One author says, one of the most fearful things you could do is walk around with a recorder in your pocket. Because every time, just imagine if every time you said, you should or, or you ought, the, re the recorder turned on and, and recorded what we we then said, man, we don't live up to our own standards of you should and you ought. Man, we don't live up to our own standards. Of course, we don't live up to God's perfect standards. He's the infinitely holy one. He's done nothing wrong. And when we stand before our infinitely holy God, the Bible says, if we have not put our faith in him, we'll be judged for that and we'll face his wrath. We'll be separated from his goodness. The Bible calls us hell. And because we believe this, we persuade others we plead with them, turn to Jesus. 
Find salvation in him. Experience eternal life. I don't want you to pay for your sins. Jesus offers you his own life in your place. He'll pay for your sins. Put your trust in him. John Patton, he was a a missionary to the island of Vanuatu. If you go from here to Hawaii and then you just keep on going to the middle of nowhere, you reach the island of Vanuatu. Now he saw this island was in desperate need of persuading. The the problem or the challenge was is this anim- this this um this island was filled with cannibals. That they, they had just killed the last missionary who couldn't even get off the beach. Um and so what he's saying, I want to, I need to go to these people. His congregation is talking to him and they're actually persuading him not to go. They go, don't you know they'll, they'll kill you? you? You won't make it out of lot, you're out there alive? Think, think about your wife. They'll eat you. And so he, he responds in a letter to, to Mr. Dixon. Mr. Dixon goes down in, in history for this. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. You're old. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. We we may not... uh, be at risk of being eaten by cannibals, cannibals this this Christmas. But but we're gonna sit around the dinner table with our extended family, and let's be honest, that can be worse. There are gonna be moments around that dinner table where we feel that tension, where where we feel that eyes are on us, and where we just we we know we we want to share about our hope. We know what this Christmas is actually pointing us to, and, you, and we feel worried. They're, are they gonna judge me? What are they going to think of me? They're going to belittle me and, and mock me. But listen, if our ultimate identity isn't determined by what those people think of us, and if our ultimate identity is fixed and, and found on in Jesus and, and our hope is in heaven, if heaven is real, if, if hell is real, then we need to share that message. There's reason to talk about what Christ has done. So maybe now you sense God is at work in your heart. Maybe you go, man, I actually, I don't know if I've put my faith in Jesus. You're, you're here and, and you're aware of the, the judgment that you deserve. You know you're under God's wrath. You have not lived the way you ought to. Let me try to persuade you, please. Turn to Jesus. The, the good news of the Bible is that God, our creator, came to his creation, that God was born in the manger in the person of Jesus. And he lived the life that we were supposed to live. He lived a perfect life and yet he still died. But he didn't die for his own sins or his own wrongdoing. He died for our sake. And the reason he died is because people killed him for persuading them. He told them, you need to trust in me and yet they killed him for it. And yet, the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead. And because he rose bodily, we too will rise bodily one day. He, his, his resurrection is what the Bible calls the first fruits. It's, it's the, the first of a great harvest of resurrections that will happen one day. And one day Jesus will come back and make all things new. That is what we put our hope in. 
And so if that's true of you, you go, yes, I believe that. Turn to Jesus. Trust him. Look to his life in your place. Let, let me close um, with this, again, with C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia series, in the last book on the last page, he says these words. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as Aslan, the great Christ uh, figure, spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. And their life in this world and their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. We long to begin chapter one, page one of the great story. And if it is going to be as great as the Bible says it will be, then let us spend our lives, let us live today creating the most beautiful cover and title page while we still can. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we, um, we cry out with the angels, with the churches in Revelation, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. God, we long for you to reappear. Lord, please, would you make all things new? God, we thank you for our blessed hope. God, we do not, we do not look around wondering what we can put our trust in, Lord. It's in you that we can put our faith. Help us, Lord, to fixate our eyes on heaven. And Lord, may that transform the way we live our lives. Lord, I pray for each and every person here this Christmas. Would they have a greater desire for what is still yet to come, for the greater Christmas celebration. Lord, and I pray, would we be able to share that message with our city, with our family, and with this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.